turn again, please, this morning to the book of Titus. Young Pastor Titus. Our series, as you know, through the summer series, anyway, until we get back to Isaiah this fall, is called The Gospel-Ordered Church. And really, this morning, we're going to get to the heart of the issue. Uh, as you see our verse up here, chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, really the heart of the issue and how the gospel, uh, the grace of God, trains us and transforms us to live a life that is a, a Christ-exalted life uh, in an orderly way. It strengthens and, and, and trains us. The, gra- the grace of God does strengthens and trains us to live in a way that not only brings Him glory, but to, to, to live together in the gospel. So, Hopefully, um, I'm going to say the word gospel a million times today, and I may even circle back and you'll be thinking, he's saying the same thing over and over again. I'm doing it on purpose this morning. I want to really make sure we walk away understanding how the gospel and the grace of God does hits his transforming, God's transforming work in our lives. So, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Let me first read you our lesson from the word of God. Chapter 2, verse 11, Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting, verse 13, for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possessions, his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy, infallible word this morning. Chapter 1, after Paul gives a short salutation, he reminds Titus why he left him there on the island of Crete. Verse 5. So that you can put what remains into order in all the churches on the island. And then Paul gives Titus in chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, a list of character traits leaders must Exhibit, must live out. And then in verse 9, he tells the pastor elders, the leaders of the church, that they must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, to cling, to be devoted to the word of God, to the trustworthy word taught, so that they may be able, verse 9, to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to confront and rebuke false teachers who contradict the message of the gospel. So here is what it looks like to live a life that is gospel-centered, that is sound doctrine, and and and, and as you live that life out, do it also to confront and rebuke false teachers who are teaching something contrary to the gospel. The centrality of Christ. The, The salvation that God has offered by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. An important message that must be declared always. In fact, we learned from chapter 1 that false teachers had come into the churches in Crete and began to teach a false doctrine. They were infiltrating and, and infecting the church that one can achieve their salvation, somehow be made right with God, be loved and accepted by God by one's own moral achievements, by following the law or rituals or doing something to earn God's favor. And if you're here this morning... I have good news for you. Stop trying to save yourself. Stop trying to justify yourself. Instead, turn to God from your self-efforts and fall on the grace of God. Throw yourself upon the love and the mercy of God found only in the gospel, the good news of Christ. Paul said this to the Romans, while we were still weak and helpless, nothing we could do, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us, for you, for me, Paul says. And while we were still sinners, we were still in rebellion of God, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. That's the good news. 
You can't earn it. It's been a gift given to you. So with that being said, as we think of the gospel, we think of the grace of God, let's just look at our text. We're going to jump right in, and we're going to see four things. The coming of grace, the training of grace, the hope and glory of grace, and the declaration of grace. This coming of grace, of Christ's coming, the, the, the work of training us to live a life in a way that honors and glorifies God. The hope and the glory of, of the grace of God appearing the second time, and then the declaration of grace. And, and what a beautiful passage uh, in Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Um, so that's our outline. So let's look at the first thing. The coming of grace. God in love. God in his love. Love for his creation. Sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As an atoning sacrifice. Who died on the cross in our place. Took our punishment. Paid the penalty. Absorb the wrath that you and I deserve for our rebellion. He took it upon himself. He was then taken off the cross and buried in a tomb. And three days later, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. A cosmic receipt announcing to the world that God's holy justice has been satisfied. Sins have been paid for. They can now be pardoned. And when the Holy Spirit whose job it is to glorify Christ, when the Holy Spirit opens the mind, opens the heart, opens the heart, and sets our, 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 our will free to embrace that truth, and we see the beauty and glory of Christ, and we turn from our self-efforts, and by grace alone, we announce that Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. I am a sinner. He's the Savior. When the Holy Spirit does that work of regeneration and renewal of the heart, there is going to be a change in one's life. There's going to be a change in one's direction. That man, that woman, or child is now a follower of Christ. The Holy Spirit's been given to that person, and the transforming work of the gospel has begun. The Bible calls it sanctification. There's a, there's a renewal of our heart, and then there's an outworking of becoming more and more and more like Christ. And the question for us this morning, and what Paul deals with, is what does that look like? What is the motivation? Do we get saved by grace alone, and then somehow we work real hard to keep earning God's favor and keep earning God's grace? Is that the way it works? Or are we saved by grace and then grace also transforms us and works in us and sanctifies us to become more like Christ? Just so you know, it's the latter. And we could turn to lots of biblical texts on what that looks like. How does the work of the gospel, how does it work in our lives? But here in Titus, Paul has already addressed what transforming grace looks like in the life of, we saw it last week, older and younger men. Older and younger women. And bondservants, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'm not going to get into what that looks like. You can read it for yourself. Sermons are online. But what I want to do is look at verse 10 of chapter 2. And what Paul is doing, it really is just a continuation of what he already said in chapter 1, verse 1, uh, where the knowledge in the gospel leads to godliness and he explained what that looks like with men, women, and, 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 and bond servants. And then in chapter two, 1, verse 10, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 10, he kind of, uh, he, he says this. Look at it with me. Chapter 2, verse 10, describing what men and women and bond servants look like. He says, so that in everything they or we may adorn, that's show off its beauty, may adorn the doctrine, the truth, the teaching of God our Savior, our Savior. So, so God wants us to live in a way, grace-filled life, that shows forth his grace and beauty, his love, his mercy, as he saves sinners, not by anything we have done, no merit of our own, but solely by grace, to adorn, show off beauty, the doctrine of God, our Savior. That's why Jesus went to the cross. Willingly went to cross, satisfy the justice of God, which required death. And now, since justice has been satisfied, grace can now reign and rule and, and operate in our lives. It's through the cross. 
Who's this God who saves? Chapter 1, verse 3, it simply says, God our Savior. Chapter 1, verse 4 says, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Paul, right out of the gate, telling us who this this God who saves. It is Jesus Christ. Look down at our text, verse 13. Our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So in chapter 2, when we get to our text in verse 11, and it says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, we know that it's God's grace, part of his nature, his work in our life, who has become incarnate in the person of Christ to bring salvation. That's the appearance of grace that Paul is talking about. It's this grace has been revealed through the, through the work and the person that's been personified in Jesus Christ. It's not, he, when he talks about the appearance of Christ, the coming of grace, he's not just talking about Jesus' birth, you know, the day in which he was born in the manger. That's part of it, of course. But it's talking about his life, talking about his perfect life, talking about his death, resurrection, exaltation, which has accomplished, accomplished, excuse me, salvation now offered to what? All men. Grace of God appeared and brings salvation to all men or to all people. Jesus comes to save sinners. That's the affirmation of the declaration of his purpose. Jesus Christ comes and he's appeared the first time bringing salvation to all men. What is, the, what, what is the grace of God? The grace of God, simply put, is his unmerited favor. That's grace. His goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his compassion demonstrated, given to undeserving sinners through the person work of Christ by no merit of our own. It is simply a gift that's been given to us by God himself. This passage here is a masterpiece of literature. It really is beautiful. I could spend months. I won't, but we could. Look at it with me. Paul very intentionally links the preceding passage, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, with the conjunction 4. You could circle that in your Bible. Chapter 2, verse 11, 4. Right? You see that? For the grace of, con, uh, grace of God has appeared. So all that I said about men and women, with that last week, chapters 2, verses 1 through 10, all that I said about men and women and bondservants and how they are to live, it's for or because of the grace of God has appeared. Catch that? That's how it's going to happen. And then what he does is very interesting also is, if you look with me at chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 15, the first verse and the last verse, it's a bracket. It kind of hones in and brackets the whole paragraph, excuse me, the whole chapter. Verse 1 of chapter 2, teach this. Teach what accords to sound doctrine, gospel doctrine, teach it. And then verse 15, declare these things. Teach and declare, and everything in between are the things he is supposed to teach and declare. Exhort and rebuke. What's also really interesting about this passage, I just, before we get into the second, um, the training of grace, I just want to point out to you. In verse 11, the noun phrase, the grace of God, and the main verb has appeared, is the topic of of the sentence, of of, of actually, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 is actually one sentence in the Greek, but it's the topic. The grace of God has appeared, and uh, 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 the grace of God, and the main verb has appeared, but... What we find in this passage in in the same verse 11, the participle training modifies the topic and controls every direction the sentence is going. So in other words, it's a cause and effect relationship. The life that men, women, and bond servants and we are to live out can only be done for the grace of God that has appeared. And that grace that has appeared is now training us working in us, transforming us to live a life, which he'll say, self-controlled, upright, saying no to worldly passions. So it is the grace of God that has appeared. Now it's doing work of training us, cause and effect relationship, to live a life of sanctification, of growing in the knowledge of God. I hope that makes sense. 
sound teaching, gospel teaching, the training of the gospel done by grace alone. And the first question we need to ask is, how does that work? How does the gospel, how does the grace of God that appeared with the person and work of Christ, the work of salvation, train us? How does it transform us? To live this life that is adoring to God, that that shows forth the beauty and the glory of God. How does that work? Number two, the training of grace. Verse 11 again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Those who believe, like the men and women in bond service he just spoke about, training us, believers, gospel and salvation trains us, believers, to do two negative things and three positive things. Look what it says. To renounce ungodliness and renounce worldly passions. Two negative. Look at three positive. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Gospel salvation and grace is training us to renounce and to live. You can see that right in the text. Now, the word training, we need to talk about it, is, in, in the original language, is, is an ongoing activity. It's something that continues. It doesn't stop. It's ongoing. It's a present participle in the Greek, and it's an ongoing activity. And the actual word train, padeo, means to not only instruct and to educate, but there's a note, there's a kind of a sense, a nuance, where there is some discipline and chastisement, like a child that you're training and educating. And the reason is, I believe, because God continually trains, I'll say me, through trials and difficulties, and oftentimes, he rightly and lovingly chastises me as I go my waywardness, or as I go away of rebellion. Hebrews, we looked at that and we studied the book together, God chastises and disciplines those he loves. It's a matter of love. It's a matter of love. And this training is not only educating, but has to do with also chastisement because God loves us. And he wants us to be trained by grace. Listen, the grace of God that saves us is not only the, the way into the kingdom. It's not simply the way into a right relationship with God. It is, it is the foundation and the force of truth by which the Spirit of God molds and transforms us to all the things we do and all the things we say. That's the grace of God. It's the foundation and the force of truth which the Holy Spirit molds us and transforms all that we do and say. How does that work? How does that work a little bit more practical? So let's look at that if we can, then we'll get right to the text. I just want to explain just a minute, a little bit, what does it mean to be gospel-centered? What does it mean to have the grace of God train you? Okay, let's talk a little bit about what it looks like to live life together. How does the gospel train us to live life together? Well, I would turn to Ephesians chapter, I'm not going to put all the verses up, just this one. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, be kind to one another, Tenderhearted, forgiving one another. It doesn't say because I told you so, or that's my command, which would be fine if God said that. You don't need to add anything. He's God. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Walk in love, as Christ loved us, and gave himself up, For us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Notice this text. The grace of God has appeared in your salvation because God was what? Infinitely kind to you. Even though you were a hater of God. Yet God's kindness came to you. Now we have to walk in kindness. He says, be tenderhearted toward one another. If it wasn't for the tenderheartedness or the tenderhearted God, there would be no salvation. God was extremely tenderhearted toward you and me. How are we to walk in love? How? Well, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So the gospel, the greatest act of love freely given to you and to me in the gospel, by grace alone, we are to take that and see that and love one another in that same way. How do we forgive one another? Well, look what it says. 
forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now again, the gospel, the grace of God. We were forgiven completely, fully, and eternally without earning one single ounce of it. How do we love one another? How do we forgive one another as the gospel shows us? Freely, completely, with love and tenderheartedness. How do you deal with unjust suffering? Right? Without, without growing bitter. Yet trusting God in the midst of it. First Peter. When he was reviled as Christ, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the Father who judges justly. Doesn't end there. Then we hear the gospel. Next verse. He himself, Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. How do we deal with unjust suffering? The gospel. How do you deal with pride in your life? All of us can be prideful at times. Paul told the Philippian church that we should do what? Nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Well, how do you do that? The rest of the verse, we saw in chapter 2, we did Philippians. We look at the sacrificial work of Christ, the death of Christ, who humbled himself, took on humanity, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Again, the gospel, the substitutionary death of Christ is the foundation and the force of truth that which the Spirit takes and molds and transforms and trains us in all that we do and say. How do you deal with racism? With discrimination of any sort. We all struggle with some form of, of, of discrimination. All right? I'm not buying into the, the critical race theory of today, but all of us have wicked hearts. I'm going to be a biblical. You may look at the poor or the weak or the rich or, the, or whatever it may be, whether it's ethnicity or whether it's finances, whether it's work ethic, whatever it is, we have a tendency, don't raise your hand, because everybody would, we have a tendency to look down at certain people. If you say, no, not me, Okay, well, then you've broken the commandment to lie, right? Stop lying. Maybe you don't dwell on it, but we deal with it. Well, how do you deal with that? Well, the good news is the grace of God trains us not to be prejudiced, not to discriminate. In Galatians chapter 2, one of my favorite verses about gospel centrality, Paul goes and confronts the apostle Peter. Because Peter, when he came to Antioch, Paul, when he came to Antioch, Peter was there, and Peter was fellowshipping with Gentiles, non-Jews. He says, when he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Paul opposed Peter to his face. Why? Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, the the Jewish brethren, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. There's a no-no in that culture and in in that way and, yeah, in that culture. But when they came, the Jewish people came, Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, fearing the, the Jews that came from James. He, Paul writes, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. So Peter, enjoying fellowship with Gentiles, having food with them, a table food, which is a no-no in, 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 in the Old Testament religious ways, Paul says, wait a second, Peter, you know racism isn't right. You know that all men were created. You know it's wrong to separate yourself because of race or social or economic differences. You know the law of Moses speaks about loving your neighbors. Paul could have told Peter that, but that's not what he did. When he confronted Peter because of his racism and his separatism mentality, this is what he says. Galatians chapter 2, verse 14. But when I, Paul the Apostle, when I saw that Peter and others, their conduct, separation, racism, elitism, when I saw their conduct was not in step or in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, what he says to Peter is like, you, Peter, know that all your law-keeping, 
does not make you right with God. You, Peter, know that all that stuff does not make you right, that you are justified, made right with God by faith alone in Christ alone, adding nothing. How can you then point to your Gentile brothers and sisters and make them live by the law, whether it's ceremonial, whether it's food, whatever it is, we are both saved the same way, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the point. All of us deserve hell and damnation, and God, out of his sovereign grace, his free sovereign grace, saves us. We're no different than anyone else. There goes your racism. There goes your prejudice. What about money? How does, the, does the gospel of grace train us about generosity? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, Paul is raising money for, for the churches in Judea. Uh, there's a famine in the land. He's going through the churches in which he planted, and he's asking for money. And know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, I planted this church, I'm an apostle, all y'all empty your pockets. And he certainly doesn't say, I got a handkerchief with my sweat on it and, and sow a seed. I'll tell you that, he doesn't do that either. Bunch of crazy lunatics. Anyway, don't get me started. He goes back to the gospel. He was raising funds. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. He came to earth from glory, comes to earth, so that by his poverty, his death, burial, and resurrection, you might become rich, rich in the gospel. In light of the grace and generosity of Christ, you should give of your funds. That's what he says. In Ephesians chapter 5, we love this verse, right? Married couples, married folks. Ephesians chapter 5, Christ loved your wife as Christ loved the church. You, can you go to the law and find, hey, you should love your wife? You probably can. Can you, go to, can, can you appeal to the conscience? Love your wife, you know, a happy wife, happy life? Yeah, but that's not what he does. In that relationship, Paul goes to the love of Christ for his bride, the church, of which the husbands are benefactors. He says, look, man, look at the spousal love that Christ has for you and the church, and do likewise. What enables and energizes this life is God's grace. Grace is the teacher. Grace and the goodness and the greatness of God teaches us, instructs us to live a life pleasing to God. Now, look at the text. Let me just jump at this real quick before we go to the next line here. It says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, the free gift of God has appeared, God saves us, training us to what? Renounce ungodliness and worldly passion, two negative things. So the grace, the goodness of Christ and the gospel trains us to renounce, that means disown, the desires for things, the pleasures, the values of this present worldly system, which really are hostile to God. To renounce those things. Listen, when, when, when the genuine grace of God appears and we, we recognize the grace of God in our salvation and it converts the heart and transforms the heart, we will grow in our desire to please God who, who is the one who laid down his life, gave his life to save us. And therefore, that will slowly erode the worldly pleasures and passions of today, or, is it, or it should. When the Bible speaks about, in our text, ungodliness and worldliness, just so you know, it has to do with a system of, of the world, a system of belief, thoughts of the world that believe that what you see is all there is. Right? It could be a nation, it could be a people, it could be a culture, and, and everybody's get what you can get, when you can get, and, and, and just feed your impulses. Do what you think is right. How does it make you feel? It has to do with the sinful impulses characteristic of the world, its values, its systems. Hendrickson in his commentary says this, According to scriptural usage, such worldly or sinful desires include the following. Inordinate sexual desire, the liquor mania, excessive yearning for material possession, self-assertiveness, vanity, the lust to dominate. Briefly, he says, it refers to the inordinate longing for pleasure, power, and possessions, end quote. The grace of God training us will teach us to renounce the anti-God mentality and worldly passions that seek self-pleasure rather than 
the passions and the pleasures of God. Positively. And to live controlled, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, we saw self-control a couple of times already. It has to do with one's mind, one's words, one's deeds, under control, but it has to do with sensibility, sober judgment. He talked about it exhorting elders and, and younger men, older men and women to live self-controlled lives. Again, as I said last week, and we see it here, it's not so much get a hold of yourself, get a grip, reach deep within and take control of your own desires and live self-controlled lives. That's not it. In humility, we need to what? Acknowledge that we need the grace of God in our lives to have a life filled with self-control. It has to do with humility and, and a willingness to yield to God. We live self-controlled life. Upright has to do with living life among one another. Doing the right thing. Saying what you mean. Following through. Living righteously before people. That's what upright means. Godly lives is, is just the opposite of ungodliness. It is a life that not only just renounces ungodliness, but a godly life lives a, is a life that lives to please the Lord. To serve the Lord. To live in a manner that is that is. That is uh, attractive to others and point to the Lord, right? It's, it's just godly living. And you notice what, what Paul is saying here. He says, God's grace trains to live in our lives. The grace of God lives in our life to take control of oneself, to live a graceful life with others, upright, and then to live a graceful life that's glorifying to God. Inwardly, dealing with others, and then upwardly. Devotion to God. And it says, look at the last part of the verse, in this present age. (laughs) Do these things in this present age. Why? Because there's an age to come. There's a blessed hope. The hope and glory of grace. We're waiting. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, we're reminded over and over in Scripture that we are sojourners in this land. This is not our final resting place. This is not our final destination. I think the church, the people of God, really need to understand that uh, in our particular culture in this day and age. We are clinging to this world as if this is our home. This is not our home. We are to wait in this present age, looking constantly with eager and and confident expectation for what? The blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of God. Remember, the Bible, when the Bible speaks of hope, it's not a hope of uncertainty as something we're not sure. It may or, or may not happen. We're not sure. That's not what biblical hope means. Will the governor resign? We hope so, but I'm not sure. Sorry, I had to throw that in there. When the Bible speaks of hope, it speaks to a, an event, an event that has been marked and will be fulfilled. Something that God has promised, the return of Christ we're talking about, right? God, God promised that Christ will return. That's our hope. God, the one who cannot lie, whose sovereign plans cannot be thwarted. We saw his first appearing in the, in the person and the work of Christ. And now we see the second appearing of Christ who will appear and the hope and the glory of God, in the hope and glory of God at his second coming. With, with, with a constant gaze then, children, brothers and sisters, the children of God look upward. While the God is training us with his grace, our eyes constantly drawn upward, fix heavenward with one hope, the return of Christ, the glory of God as Christ Returns. And we, we speak of glory a lot of times. We, you, you think of the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God. When the presence of God breaks forth into our world, breaks forth in the, in the moral darkness, the bright shining glory of God will be revealed when Christ returns. The glory of God. Hebrew, kabod. It has to do with the majesty, the, the radiant beauty, the radiant splendor the incalculable worth and infinite value of God. When God in Christ is revealed, the divine glory will come. That's a hope. 2 Corinthians 4, I love this verse. 
2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the grace of God, the love of God, the salvation of God, from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory, infinite value, incalculable work of Christ, who is the image of God. God said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, listen, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and 6. Let me tie this all together with an illustration. Suppose you go to a doctor. Got something going on. And the doctor brings you in his office, sits you down and says, listen, Lou, you have a extremely rare very deadly disease, possibly a couple of weeks to live. But there is a very, 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 very expensive medication that can heal you. And yes, you're right. Your insurance doesn't cover it. All that you worked for, all that you enjoyed, all that you have done has to be sold. In order for you to have enough money to buy the medication... And you say to your doctor, what good is all that stuff if I am dead? Suddenly, that medication becomes the most precious, beautiful, majestic, splendor things that you have. And all the other stuff becomes meaningless. When Christ and his salvation becomes your greatest treasure. When the gospel becomes your greatest treasure, when the grace of God becomes your greatest treasure, God will do the work of training you to live in his glory and beauty. Because when we sin, when I sin, when I sin and rebel against God, when, I, when you and I live in an ungodly way, thinking this world offers us something better, or we live in worldly passions, thinking that somehow that satisfaction in that worldly pleasure found in this world is going to somehow bring satisfaction to our lives. We're not living in the beauty and glory of God. We're not valuing Him, treasuring Him as the great and precious God that He is. We don't live self-controlled is because we don't see how His will and glorifying him is really best for us. We, we think that this world can offer us something. We think that our own passion, our own pleasure will somehow satisfy. We think that we value and we love and we treasure things will somehow make an impact and change us and, and give us what we think we so desperately need. But that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. When we don't live honorably, when we don't live righteously before others, many times it's because we value their opinion their, and we honor them more than we value what God has said to us in the gospel. When we don't live a godly life, a life pleasing to God in this present age because we're treasuring things that are not going to satisfy beyond really the treasures of Christ. Let, let, me, let, me, let me just dive into this a little bit deeper. Family, if you've never heard this before, let me, let me tell you. God has created you in the Imago Dei, in his image and likeness. He created us worshipers. He didn't simply create us to worship. We are actually worshipers. We were made in his image. We were made to glorify him, to treasure him, um, to, to treasure him as the preeminent and ultimate person in the universe. But because of sin... We're bent toward glorifying in things other than God. We, we hold things to our heart. We are, we are clinging to things, hoping in things that won't really satisfy. In fact, Romans 1 says this, that we exchange the truth about God, His grace, His kindness, His salvation. We exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The things in which we are glorifying in, the things in which we put preeminence and prominence in our lives are the things in which we treasure. And when we treasure those things, 
We don't see the grace of God and the treasure of Christ as the preeminent thing in our lives, and we chase after other things. And we, we sin and, we, and we, we violate the scriptures because we're not resting in and trusting in the God of glory, the God of grace. Do you see that? For some people, it's alcohol or drugs, relationships, marriage, good reputation, a position of power, or even financial security. See, it is we're worshiping, we're glorying in something. And God says, no, glory and worship me and you'll be satisfied. You know, the lures and hopes of this world do not shine so brightly when we hope and glory in Christ. The pleasures of sin, and there is pleasure in sin, the Bible says so, are not so attractive, are not so strong when we compare it to the glory and the pleasure and the beauty and the worth of Christ and the gospel and all that he has done in the treasury of Christ, in the grace of Christ. That's what I want you to see this morning. It is the gospel, it is the grace of God that trains us. It is the coming of grace, it is the training of grace, it is the hope and the glory of Christ in the gospel that trains us. And finally, look at the declaration, verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul declares here in verse 14, before he says to Titus to declare it, he declares the reality of God's grace and he brings it in with such beautiful words of the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ who what? Gave himself for us. Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life for a ransom for many. Salvation, forgiveness of sins, finds its efficacy in the perfect sacrifice, victorious, excuse me, vicarious sacrifice of Christ. Four, three things real quickly. One, Jesus paid our penalty. Look what it says. Who gave himself, who gave himself. Third person, active, self-sacrifice. Paul wants to make it very clear that Jesus wasn't coerced. Jesus was enforced. Jesus willingly gave himself for, in our place, on our behalf, for our redemption. Look what it says. He gave himself for us to redeem us. Redeem. The word redeem means uh, uh, to be set free. It's a ransom payment that was paid for slaves and for, for someone who's in jail. It was a debt that was satisfied and it released the person from debt. And set them in freedom. Sort of like when God saves and rescues Israel in Exodus. And he frees them. And he sets them free. Moses says, I am the Lord. I'll bring you out from the burdens of Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you. I will buy you back. I will set you free. With an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Jesus Christ dies in our place as our ransom to release us. From the bondage of our sins. He pays the price that we could not pay. He pays our penalty. Look what else he does. He purifies us. Gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. That's all our sin. And to purify us. One of the things that the Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to. Is the fact that sin is not just a brokenness and rebellion. But it's a defilement. This washing of hands, washing of pots, all this washing, all this blood spraying and sprinkling has to do with cleansing from sin, right? Sin's heinous and grievous. It causes us to be stained, particularly in sexual sin. We see people who have been, who, who, who violated uh, their bodies. They feel like we want to shower. They're, they're dirty. But John tells us in 1 John that if we confess our sins, he, Christ, is faithful and he is just. And he will forgive us of our sins and wash us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sin makes us guilty and dirty. The gospel makes us innocent and clean. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. Whether something's been done to you or something you have done. When you come in contact with Jesus, there's cleansing. There's washing. There's purifying. Paid the penalty. Purifies us from sin. And he possesses us. I love this passage. Jesus possesses us as his own. He gave himself to redeem, buy us back, cleanses us from our sins. For himself, a people for his own possession. 
Whenever you read that, you read it both in the Old and New Testament. When, when the Bible says that God redeemed us and brought us, that we are now his own possession, there is a sense where there's this preciousness, there's this costliness, there's this love relationship and, and identity that God says, I've redeemed you, you're mine, I love you, you belong to me. And family, when you see all this, when you see the penalty of our sins have been paid, he purifies us from all our sins, and we are now, we belong to him, we're his possession. Then you get to verse 14. The end of verse 14. He prepares us, those people, for what? Good works. So let let me me just say, gospel-centered, grace-centered, sound doctrine that both trains us and supplies us with the motive to do good works and the power to do good works is simply by the grace of God. The training of grace happens when we understand the great truths of the grace of God. That salvation has been offered to us through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, as we, we drink deeply of the salvation that delivers us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, the presence of sin, as we drink deeply of the cleansing and reconciling the work of God that makes us his treasure, possession, it trains us. The grace of God trains us to live a life pleasing to the Lord. It, it supplies us and, and gives us the right motive to do the works of the Lord. Getting it backwards is, is a disaster. Remember this, indicatives, the fact of who you are in Christ and in the gospel, freely given to you by the grace of God, the indicative comes before the imperatives, the the commands to do. Again, if you get it backwards, it's a mess. Paul tells Titus, preach these things, declare these things. Verse 15, exhort, rebuke with all authority. Family, let me say this as we close and go to communion. Preach and declare the gospel to yourself every day. Every moment if you have to. Tim Keller likes to say the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the same time we are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than we ever dared hope, end quote. We must look to Jesus. Our hearts must be stirred by the salvation and the grace that he shows us. And that our affections toward the incalculable worth of Christ needs to be flamed by the grace of God. Let us be those, those men in, in, thir- in Matthew 13 who saw the, 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 the pearl hidden or the, or the fields that they wanted to buy and they sold everything because they knew if they give it all up for that precious gift of salvation, they'll have more than they've ever thought or imagined. And we experience the love and grace of God. As the band comes up, Paul tells Titus, declare, exhort, and rebuke. In other words, encourage those who are doing the right thing, rebuke those who aren't doing the right thing. Encourage those who are, who are living a life centered on the grace of God, living out the grace of God, encourage them. But rebuke those who are living in, a, in a contrary to the grace that is training you. And do it with all authority and let no one disregard you. Listen. Many, many times our problems are a failure to apply the gospel to our lives. So often we fail to, be, to, be, to, to grow and to be transformed by the Spirit because we're failing to, to look at the gospel, the truth of the grace of God, and apply it to our situation. What is the answer to hate and to pride and to racism and to unforgiveness? It's the gospel. How can you, be, how can you hate someone when you were an enemy of God and God pursued you, loves you, and died for you? How can you hold back forgiveness when God has forgiven you? How can you be a racist knowing that God loves all people, all nations, all tongues, all tribes? Preach the gospel. Bang it into your head. Bang it into your heart. Declare it to others. I mean, that's what this table is all about. This communion table is about declaring the gospel. It is a reminder of the work of Christ, and he invites us to the table to partake of the bread, to drink of the cup, to be reminded of the gospel. So as we do that this morning, let me ask you, what areas of your life are you, that you need to be trained to say no to ungodliness? How the gospel can help you to say no to ungodliness, no to worldly pressure, uh, passions. How can the gospel say, you know what, I'm not going to seek worldly pleasures. I'm going to be satisfied in the truth of the grace of who God is and what God has done. What areas of your life does the gospel of grace need to train you to have self-control? 
Not chasing after the pleasures of this world, but resting and relying upon the glory and the beauty of Christ. Let's remember the gospel. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to remember the gospel. And, 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 and as the band's going to play, we're going to use the very last rows to come down and the rest of the rows to go up. Bread and the cup. We're going to go back to regular communion. If you want to take the already made one, you could do that as well. The band's going to play when you're ready. Talk to the Lord. Ask him, what areas of my life am I not resting in your grace? What areas of my life am I not trusting you? How am I not applying the truth of the gospel in this and that area of my life? Help me to see that. And after you spend some time in prayer, confessing and repenting of sin, you can come, grab the bread, grab the cup or self-contained cup, and take it back to your seat and wait. Sing, pray, and wait. And after the first song, we've got plenty of time. I'm going to come up and we're going to take together. So you're going to come up and you grab the element and wait, and we'll take it together. Let us pray. Father, our hearts are prone, as Calvin said, as idle factories. And Lord, there are things that we keep putting in our lives that become more important to us than you. Help us to see and to look into the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and see the beauty and the glory and the majesty and worth and value of him in his person and in his work on the cross. Help us to understand your grace in our lives and help us to just, we we pray that the Holy Spirit would stir our hearts so that you are the ultimate being in our lives and that, Father, that will bring transformation as we rest in the reality that our sins are forgiven. We didn't earn it. You have freely offered it to us. Help us to relish in the reality of the gospel and help that propel us into a life that is pleasing to you, that you have offered to us the gift of salvation. So, Father, as we sing, as we take of the cup, Uh, and, and take of the bread and drink of the cup, Lord, we pray that your grace would do its transforming work. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.